I love pickles. Dill, spicy, sweet, and otherwise. So the other day, I was making a sandwich and read the label on the local pickled garlic a friend had recently given me. One of those upscale pickles, pretty labels, you know, the works. I read the label and it mentioned that the product sourced garlic from a local developmental services agency and that funds would be in direct support of adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Direct support to me should mean that the workers are getting paid, but I was suspicious. Were the people who had grown the garlic been paid? How much were they being paid? Sure enough, I quickly learned that the adults who had grown, picked, and sorted this garlic had not in fact been paid, but instead were considered volunteers. The agency instead would financially benefit from the sale of the garlic, but the people who spent hours, days, weeks doing the labor of this work would not receive a penny for their labor. Hey, I'm Megan. I'm a disabled researcher and writer passionate about understanding and making known the conditions of disability and institutions in Canada. And this is Invisible Institutions, a podcast about the long history of disability confinement in Canada and its ongoing impacts on the lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Unpaid farm labor of persons with intellectual disabilities has a long history in Canada. The Rideau Regional Centre, a large-scale institution for persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities, like many facilities, had a working farm, which the residents were expected to work in. The food from the farm fed them, and the surplus was sold for profit. The residents were not paid. In 1971, their garden produced 433.5 tons of vegetables. It included 9,000 bags of potatoes, 12,000 cabbages, 2,500 lettuces, 3,500 tomato plants, and 114 acres of lawns, alongside 8,000 square feet of flower beds. And the work didn't end in the garden. Inmates were employed throughout the institution and were essential to its operation, making and distributing food, sewing clothes, and doing laundry. Here's David Wearmy, an institutional survivor and lifelong advocate. I work. Oh, you worked. Where did you work? I worked in the laundry. In the laundry. That does not sound like it was a, a good job or something you would... No. No. Lots of heavy clothing, I imagine. Yeah. Did you get paid? 70 cents. 70 cents. A day? Every two weeks. Every two weeks, you got 70 cents. Yeah. Beyond the labor inside the institution, forced labor also became a popular way to move patients out of the institution. A public inquiry in 1971 entitled The Williston Report 
was a result of the cases of Frederick Elijah Sanderson and Jean-Marie Martel, who were incarcerated at the Rideau Regional Center. Elijah Sanderson was a 19-year-old Cree man who was confined in the center until he died while on work leave from the institution. Elijah repeatedly expressed an interest to learn how to read and write and to not participate in the farm labor, but he was continuously forced to return to the farm, where he slept in quarters, in quotes, not fit for human habitation, and worked for 14 cents an hour doing farm labor. He died by suicide after being forced to return to the farm for a third time. Jean-Marie Martel, the other man who was part of this inquiry, was a Franco-Ontarian incarcerated at the age of 14 for mental retardation with disease and condition due to unknown prenatal influence. After attending school, Martel was forced to work between 12 and 15 hours a day as a farmhand where he was barely paid. The family he worked for locked him in his bedroom, forced him to wash outside in frigid minus 20 degree temperatures, and fed him only calf starter, ketchup, and macaroni. Under the auspices of training programs, employers can legally pay people with intellectual and developmental disabilities pennies an hour, deny overtime pay, and other protections granted to the vast majority of labor force members. This episode, I am joined by two amazing people with disabilities who are advocating for labor rights and inclusion. Yeah, hi. I'm uh, Donnie McLean. Um, I'm the president of People First in Nova Scotia. I asked Donnie what his experiences with sheltered workshops were. Uh, Disability um, people can work and have experience in uh, working, working out in the sort of like the community, but it's it's not really. It's uh, like a, a workshop where you. Uh, go there and experience like mowing lawns and uh, shoveling snow and painting, stuff like that, and doing uh, kindling. And they do uh, sanding stuff and they do it, uh, some do it five days a week, some do it two, depends on what they want to do. And uh, they get paid at the end of the week, but they don't get paid very much. Sheltered workshops are places where people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are segregated, isolated, and underpaid. While provinces have Employment Standards Acts, sheltered workshops can get past them by labeling these workplaces as training programs. More than a fifth of workers are in sheltered workshops for more than 10 years. Almost half of workers are in sheltered workshops for more than five years. Sheltered workshops pay people varying rates, but they are consistently exploitative. Yes, I have. I've worked there until 83. Then when my mother passed away, I went back until 98, then left, then started again in 2000 in a different workshop. The first workshop was called the Revolving Door in Paradise, Nova Scotia. 
And now it's in Lawrencetown, Nova Scotia, the Annapolis Valley. How much were you getting paid at those sheltered workshops? Well, the first one I was getting paid, uh, first I was getting paid $30 for 75 hours. Then it went up to 47. And when it went up to 47, they took $9 off. We never had no, we got buses running now, but at that time there was no buses. They didn't have any. So we took the uh, work van and they took us home. And so for using their gas, they took off $9 of our pay, which we weren't getting much, only $47.25 for 75 hours work. And I didn't think that that was really competent when we were doing just as hard work as everybody else that was getting paid minimum wage or more. Yeah, so what was the work that you were doing? I was mowing lawns and and sometimes we mowed down in Annapolis and we, know, we mowed about three quarters of that place and uh, even in hot weather. So chopping, uh, splitting wood with a wood splitter, we did help people, other houses to pile the wood down there in the basement. We uh, did some painting. Did the occasional uh, shoveling, but not too much of shoveling. And if they built anything like benches or anything like that, or or picnic tables, we'd have to sand them and stuff like that. And we did uh, survey stakes, so we were doing quite a bit of work, but we were getting paid uh, very much for it. Sheltered workshops are often rationalized as, in quotes, promoting meaningful involvement in community but labeled people do not agree. At first, I didn't realize that it was a big thing, really. But then as uh, I got a little older and, and stuff like that, I, I thought like it was too much work for a uh, little pay. And they were kind of, uh, I, I thought they were kind of uh, pulling our legs and, and saying, you know, work for this, and they won't understand what they're doing. and. After over the years, I got a little older, I realized that they were pulling the wool over our eyes and making us work and not realize that we, that some of us knew that they were paying us too little. And I found that out one time. And so I said to them, I said, I know what's going on. And I went by their office one day and they actually were whispering. And I heard them and they said, he knows what's going on here. And after I heard that, I said, I'm leaving. They said, you know where the door is? I said, yeah, I do. But I'm not using it again after I leave. And I didn't. They, they see themselves that they're getting work and they're getting out there. But they're not really into the workshops themselves. They're not going there and seeing how hard they're working and how sweat they're working. And some of them say they want to get paid minimum wage and they're not. And they ask the question, why can't we get it just because we're handicapped? Why can't we get that wage? Because we're no different than anybody else. And why do you work as, just as hard as everybody else? And the other ones that are not handicapped get paid regular wages and that. And they're not. 
People with disabilities have been fighting sheltered workshops for decades, sometimes successfully. Unrelenting activism in BC meant that sheltered workshops were removed as exemptions from the Employment Standards Act, essentially barring sheltered workshops from existing in the province. In Ontario, sheltered workshops were supposed to be ended under the Wynne government in 2017. But after their loss in the election in 2018, Doug Ford's conservative government decided to continue the sheltered workshop program. So why can employers pay people with disabilities subminimum wage? How is it legal? Does anyone care? To find out more, I spoke with Ari Naiman. Ari Naiman is a disability rights activist, PhD candidate at Harvard University, and the co-founder of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. Right now, he is writing a book on the history of disability advocacy in the USA for Simon & Schuster. His articles on sheltered workshop policy, almost everything you need to know about sheltered workshops, are amazing resources that we will link in the show notes. Hi, Ari. Thanks so much for joining me today. Your work centers in the U.S., but Canadian and American institutionalization and deinstitutionalization policy followed each other incredibly closely. Can you tell me a little bit more about how sheltered workshops came into existence? Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the show, Megan. Um, It's a pleasure to chat with you. I'm so glad that you're covering this important topic. Um, When we talk about the history of sheltered workshops, we're we're generally talking about a history that looks at which groups of disabled people were considered the most unemployable at any given time. And I think it's a very powerful illustration of um, how uh, that idea of the relative employability or unemployability of a person is heavily influenced by society. Because when we go back to, um, for example, one of the earliest sheltered workshops in North America, um, the Perkins Institution's work department um, in the 1840s, what we see is in the population being served by sheltered workshops at the time was, was very, very different. There is this larger historical arc where um, the population served by workshops really shifts based on um, the extent to which any given group is or is not integrated into the broader workforce or is seen as more or less capable of um, employment in regular jobs. Sheltered workshops in the USA started with predominantly people with physical disabilities in the 1840s. They were a really politically active group engaged in protesting and civil disruption to demand an end to sheltered workshops. But at this time, they were really just talking about people with physical disabilities. Their advocacy did not include people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who were largely institutionalized during these protests. So sheltered workshops found ways to continue and transform to include people who were considered more disabled and less employable over time. You know, I think it's important in this discussion to recognize that sheltered workshops for people with IDD really were started with the best of intentions. You know, one of my good friends who has been in the developmental disability field for uh, longer than I have been alive likes to say that the mark of anybody good 
in uh, the field of disability is that they're at least a little ashamed of what they were doing 20 years ago. And you really see that in the context of sheltered workshops because um, in the IDD field, workshops were frequently set up with the goal of uh, providing people leaving institutions with something to do during the day. And there was very much uh, a lot of overlap between um, some of the folks developing workshops in the 80s and 90s and folks promoting um, transition out of state institutions. Okay, so this is where things get a little bit tricky. Movements towards deinstitutionalization were largely run by parents and family members of people in institutions. They had a really amazing goal, the complete elimination of institutions for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. In pursuit of this goal, advocates proposed several stopgap measures that they viewed as essential to solving the primary problem of institutionalization. This included things like group homes and sheltered workshops. Today, some sheltered workshops are provided by these same not-for-profit organizations, while others are provided by large-scale for-profit companies. I think that's worth acknowledging because, you know, when we talk about the problems of sheltered workshops, we, we are talking about very real problems of segregating people with disabilities from the broader society, um, often of exploitation of people with disabilities labor through subminimum wage. Um, but at the same time, while there are some, uh, you know, very malicious actors or, or actors who at this stage, I think, you know, really should know better. You, you think about some of the nonprofits out there where you have senior executives making uh, six-figure salaries and paying workers with disabilities pennies an hour. That's certainly an area where you do have bad actors. By and large, when we talk about the folks running sheltered workshops, we're talking about folks who set up um, something that was considered progressive at the time they started, and really history overtook them, and now we have a better way. I'm going to add a bit of nuance here, because I think it's really important to understand the world of nonprofits. Some agencies are given contracts for the work that people with intellectual disabilities in sheltered workshops do. So a large sum of money that the organizations determine how to divvy up among workers and themselves. In 2015, a Toronto Star investigation gave light into some of the contracts that these agencies had. One of them for assembling those Remembrance Day poppies that legions sell. The people assembling them were given one penny a poppy. Similarly, assembling windshield wiper tubes for five cents a piece. The nonprofits might not be making a massive or substantial profit off of the contract, but they are certainly using it, maybe to pay staff. Who, need I remind you, they pay real wages. Just because they're handicapped don't mean that you cannot pay them a good wage. I asked Dr. Jihan Abbas to explain the interconnections between institutional and present-day labor policy. So in terms of that thread to past policy, 
Um, if we look at something like sheltered workshops, um, which started within institutional settings and then moved into the community, um, this sort of initial policy focus for everyone to work, I think has really helped these exploitive forms of labor thrive in the community. Um, and they continue under the guise of things like training or rehabilitation, um, but we've repackaged them now. Um, so they're far more palatable. Um, so just in terms of both framing them as rehabilitation or training, or in terms of the agencies or maybe the private sector, their involvement uh, will frame it as acts of charity, corporate go goodwill, creating opportunities for people. Um, so we still have these sites where people with intellectual disabilities are being exploited for this labor. And I think it's for the good of the institution, or not, not for the good of the institution, but for the good of the agency. So much the same way that we saw that labor sort of fuel institutions, um, I think when we look closely, that labor is also um, sort of fueling some community agencies and sort of helping them survive. Ari offers some really important input on what we need to do to move forward. And so I think, you know, in the optimal circumstance, what we really want when we talk about the future of employment services for people with developmental disabilities is we want not to demonize, but uh, to provide that expertise through a supported employment model um, in which people work in the broader community and are supported with services that are brought to them rather than an expectation that in order to receive employment services, you must work for some special separate employer. That requires a certain degree of retraining on the part of providers. There are new skills that providers need to develop, in particular skills like um, the discovery process to help engage people with uh, significant disabilities, including cognitive and communication challenges to find a workplace that works for them, um, the job development process, engaging employers to find out what they need and often to craft or carve a job around the needs of a particular person with a disability and a particular employer. So those are often new skills for people who operate workshops, but we very much want to teach them that and we want to try and build a very collaborative approach towards ending the sheltered workshop model um, and instead supporting people in competitive integrated employment. A lot of it comes back towards making clear that when we talk about moving people out of sheltered workshops and when we talk about ending subminimum wage, we are not talking about abandoning people who have historically been served in a sheltered workshop or subminimum wage setting. We are instead talking about changing the service model in much the same way that we were talking about changing the service model when we moved away from institutions and towards home and community-based services. Listen, this piece is so important. Sheltered workshops began to provide meaningful daytimes for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. But meaningful days do not necessarily mean work. I know I personally have so many meaningful days when I don't work, but instead I'm just a part of my community. Maybe that means baking for my neighbors, or spending the day in the bath listening to music my friend made because my chronic pain is so bad I can't do anything else. Work 
does not make a person a person. We are all deserving of community, connection, and support, regardless of if the work we do is deemed as productive. And of course, there are people whose impairments make it such that they cannot work, but this doesn't mean that they should be relegated to days of boredom, isolation, or segregation. So many people, though, see sheltered workshops and segregated spaces as the only option for providing meaningful days for people with disabilities. This is a false dichotomy. Our world is full of beautiful options. Consider this. Many of the families that have been vocal opponents of the closure of sheltered workshops do not see sheltered workshops as providing their family members employment services, first and foremost. Um, what they really are seeing them do is provide them with some form of structured activity during the day. And if what you are actually looking to sheltered workshop for is day habilitation services, or uh, so that someone has something to do during the day that gives them some sense of meaning, or respite care services so that people who live at home are able to get out of the house and um, you know their parents or sibling can go to work, um, then you really have to answer the question, can't we do a better job at providing day have or respite care services in a more integrated way than we're doing presently when we're providing them under the guise of employment service provision? There are still some entities that, that are holding out and fighting, in my opinion, on the wrong side of these issues. But a lot of provider organizations and a lot of family organizations that were initially skeptical have come over to our side and, and are now supporting moving away from sheltered workshops and moving away from subminimum wage. And the reason that they do that is because they have seen that disability rights advocates working on these issues um, do not intend to abandon people with severe disabilities. Um, to me, that is one of the most important messages that we can send, and we have to take it extremely seriously. We, we have to operate under the assumption that we have a, a moral obligation to ensure that as our service system evolves, it evolves to deliver better services to the people that it presently supports, um, not to simply move and support another easier to serve group of people. It's good to expand services to more people, but you always have to maintain that obligation to people um, with significant disabilities. I believe we can do that in evolving our system uh, towards a more inclusive form of service provision and practice. Society and media particularly love to use people with more significant impairments as the justification for many things like sheltered workshops, ongoing institutionalization, and the revocation of consent. Segregated subminimum wage labor adapts to changing political opinions. I'm thinking about a local cafe that only employs autistic people. I am thinking about developmental services agencies touting volunteer opportunities. I'm thinking about social enterprises that come from group homes. A rose by any other name is still a rose. In this instance, what are sheltered workshops by any other name? This is really, I think, a, a crucial problem that's existed in the sheltered workshop model um, and in many uh, 
entities that are functionally workshops, even if they are not in name, for a long time. And that is the, um, the co-mingling of roles. You have the same entity, your service provider, who optimally should be helping you advance, who should be helping support your future career development, who may have a responsibility to help you um, negotiate with your employer for better wages or benefits or think about finding a new employer if they aren't a good fit. Well, that same service provider is also your employer. And when your service provider is also your employer, they do not necessarily just have your interests at heart. They also have the set of interests and priorities that any employer has to retain their most productive workers, to keep down compensation costs, to reduce or minimize turnover. That commingling of roles, to me, really is in, in stark conflict with what we should mean when we talk about competitive integrated employment. You know, as you say, arose by any other name. Um, you know, we see this in the context of residential services and institutionalization as well, when, um, you know, there is this concerning tendency on the part of some providers to rebrand what are essentially institutional settings as gated communities or campus settings and try and get uh, community service funding from it. If it looks like an institution and if it operates like an institution, it's an institution. And by the same token, if it looks like a workshop, if it looks like a segregated employment setting and operates like one, we should treat it like one. We, we need to have high standards for what we consider to be integrated employment. We absolutely do need to have incredibly high standards. So in Canada, the last time the federal government engaged in conversations about subminimum wage, was actually in 2015 when they gave a $100,000 contract for paper shredding to an Ottawa-based developmental service agency that was paying their employees less than $1.50 an hour. I think that one of the things that feels incredibly frustrating with sheltered workshops is that a shocking number of people, uh, particularly people who are generally involved in labor rights or workers' rights, are completely unaware of the realities of disability labor across the country. I think we are struggling with the depoliticization of disability. And this is something that, frankly, the entirety of the disability rights movement, going back decades and really two centuries, as I'll be discussing in my book, um, has struggled with. Uh, namely, that, that we see as a society disability as apolitical territory. We see it as something that people, uh, out of a sense of humanitarian instincts, um, engage with free of any economic motives um, and free of any political assumptions. It doesn't mean that people in disability service provision are mustachioed villains cackling maniacally about exploiting disabled people. No, it, it's simply that the economics matter. Um, and service providers change when systems of public funding change. And whenever we are talking about something that involves um, public policy, we are talking about something that involves politics. I think we really need to invest in bringing politics back into the public discussion with respect to disability. Now, there's been a lot of progress on that. Uh, over the course of the last um, two presidential elections, 
we've seen more attention to issues like subminimum wage. Um, both uh, President Biden and the uh, 2016 Democratic uh, presidential nominee Hillary Clinton um, promised to end subminimum wage. Uh, of course, U.S. politics. I can't speak to what's going on in Canadian politics. But we are, again, really seeing a lot of progress in the disability rights movement's longstanding objective to get our society to recognize that disability is political in nature. So let's add some Canadian context here. Journalist Andre Picard broke the story of the Conservative government ending a long-standing contract for document shredding, throwing 50 people out of work and causing controversy as many of the workers were people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Get this. The controversy was not that the federal government was paying workers $1.15 an hour, but it was instead that they ended the program. People pushed the government to extend the contract for underpaid workers. We have a long way to go in Canada, but the case in BC shows us that it is possible to shut down these exploitative workplaces. Yeah, so... Along with that shift towards politicizing disability and politicizing the conditions of disability, what do you think will really turn the tides on the largely normalized use of sheltered workshops? Well, I think we are beginning to see the tide turn. You know, in the United States, in the last several years, there's been a more than 60% reduction in the use of subminimum wage. So um, at least in the U.S. context, which is what I can speak to, we are seeing tremendous progress. And, and um, there has been a dramatic reduction in the use of subminimum wage. Um, you know, I think we are uh, also seeing significant expansions in supported employment services, Um, There's a wide variety of other uh, positive signs. Uh, One thing that I think is quite important um, is addressing disincentives to work uh, in the context of our income support system. People with disabilities getting uh, supplemental security income and social security disability insurance are often very much limited in their ability to work while still retaining access to benefits and healthcare services. You know, there's also, I think, a lot of important work to be done engaging with employers. During the Obama administration, the Obama administration put in place some requirements to expand affirmative action for workers with disabilities among federal contractors, specifically setting a goal, a target that at least 7% of the federal contract workforce would be workers with disabilities. That's a relatively low target. Sheltered workshops are deeply connected to institutionalization. Institutions can also operate sheltered workshops or employment training programs. Subminimum wage traps people in a cycle of poverty that makes independent living incredibly difficult. People with disabilities who want to and can work deserve real work for real pay. And if you're not going to pay them and you can't pay them, then don't work them so hard. They deserve to be shut down. The fight to raise minimum wage, the labor movement, and allies need to include people with intellectual disabilities in their advocacy and continue to fight for workers' rights for all. Thanks so much for joining me today for Invisible Institutions.
Invisible Institutions was created by me, Megan Linton, with support and advisement from People First of Canada and Inclusion Canada's Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. Audio recording also by me. Audio post-production and sound design were by Helena Crobath. And our theme music was composed by Bara Vladek. Special thanks to Donnie McLean, Jamie Lynn McDowell, Jihan Abbas, David Wereme, Ari Naiman, Kit Chalkley, and Kendall David. This episode was recorded on unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin Anishinaabeg territory. Talk to you next time.